All right, we are back. As promised, the top of the program. We're now going to speak with someone who's become a regular. I think Stephen J. Harper is to us as Andy Rooney. Maybe perhaps once to 60 minutes, someone we can count on to come in and spice things up. And maybe be a bit curmudgeon-y in the process. Yes, yes. That, yes. So without further ado, let me just say, welcome back to Radio Parallax, Stephen Harper. Thank you, Doug. Always a pleasure to, to converse with you. I would remind our listeners that you are the creator of the Insurrection Timeline, the Pandemic Timeline series, and the Trump-Russia-Ukraine Timeline, which are at BillMoyers.com, all of which we've had the pleasure of speaking with you about on RadioParallax.com. We just want to plug those. If people are not aware of it, they should be. Thank you. Now, you've written a piece here recently that turned up in Common Dreams under the headline, Help Wanted, Five Rational Republicans Willing to Save the U.S. Economy. And I'm a little bit out of my element in discussing things uh, regarding economics, but uh, you are not. You have quite a solid background on this. Let's talk about it. Sure. Maybe by the time we get to the summer, I should maybe start something called the U.S. government default timeline, huh? Looks like you're headed that way. Sure does. Where would you like to begin? There's so much misinformation, disinformation, deception, and lying that's going on by Republicans about the debt limit and its implications and its consequences and what it means that it's hard to know where to begin. Well, I think everybody's ignorant, myself included, about some of the details of what this debt limit is all about. I guess let's start with the fact that how the Republicans are mischaracterizing it. Sure. Well, let's start with what the the debt is. That is, the what is the U.S. debt? The U.S. debt is the combination of all government obligations of, of various types that have accumulated over the 200-plus years of the, of the government's existence. The biggest chunk right now, the total debt, the ceiling that is now the subject of great controversy, is $31 trillion, which sounds like a, a very large number, which of course it is, but relative to the size of other things like the total asset value of the of the United States, it's not really as big as, and daunting a number as it seems. Well, Steve, I got I to stop you right there and say, if I was an alien from Mars and I wanted to buy the U.S. economy and I had unlimited resources, so what would that set me back? Oh, probably four, four to five times the total debt okay. by some estimates. So if you think of it that way, the total debt amounts to 25% of the the value of the country, if you will, okay. uh, by some by some economists' estimates. At least that was the, that was the last one I read. Here's the thing about it: the the whole notion that there should be a big crisis surrounding this is really wrong. And that's because you have to look at what the dev- government debt consists of. So if you take that 31 trillion dollars, seven trillion of it is what's called intragovernmental debt. That is bonds and, and, and instruments that the Treasury issues, like savings bonds to individuals, to the Social Security Administration, for example, which takes in more money than it pays out. As a result, it has $2.5 trillion of what's called intragovernmental debt. That is holdings that, that add to the total debt of the United States. There are similar military retirement funds. There are similar uh, pension funds of all types. So that half of all debt, half of this big number, $31 trillion, is held by Social Security, retirement funds, pension funds, and those sorts of things. The public holds about $24 trillion total. Again, some of this is retirement funds. In mutual funds, savings bonds, banks own some of it. So people say, well, why don't we just get rid of the debt? Well, if you get rid of the debt, what you would really get rid of are things like savings bonds, treasury bills, T-bills, the kinds of things that the government issues 
in order to fund its the obligations of government. Here's the other thing that people get all tangled up in because, the, again, Republicans are just out to confuse people about this. The so-called debt ceiling is not analogous to what Republicans say. Well, this is just like your credit card. When you max out on your credit card, you can't spend anymore. Well, that's not an analogy that works because the monies that are now the subject of controversy in terms of should we raise the debt ceiling limit or not, those monies have already been appropriated by Congress. They are authorized. The president doesn't have the discretion not to spend that money. So you can make an argument, and a number of people have, that even the notion of a statutory debt limit is unconstitutional because there is a constitutional requirement in the U.S. Constitution in the 14th Amendment going back to the Civil War and the post-Civil War days that says the debt of the United States shall not be questioned. So is it more like the person sitting there who's already got his credit card bill and it's sitting there on his desk and he's just saying, well, I, maybe I won't pay this? Exactly. And you know what happens then? They come after you for it. <laughs> and the notion that you would not pay for existing government obligations, Republicans try to treat this as, well, the American way is we pay our bills. Okay, if the American way is to pay your bills, then why are we even talking about the debt ceiling? Because you guys have already, that is you guys being the entire Congress, Republicans and Democrats, have already approved expenditures that take us above the so-called $31 trillion debt ceiling limit. So stop the nonsense, raise the limit. If you want to talk about reducing spending or reducing deficits, because what ultimately creates debt over time not enough revenue coming in. You have taxes coming in and you have expenditures going out. If they don't equalize, you must borrow the difference. That's exactly right. And over time, that accumulates and it becomes the national debt. Now, it's worth mentioning to the Republicans who care, or anyone who cares, that one-fourth of our current national debt, over $7 trillion, accrued during the Trump administration. In that four-year period, we added 25% of what is now the total debt of the United States that has accumulated over 200 years. So is it fair to say this is from some, some tax benefits that went to people, complemented by the fact that the spending cuts just didn't take place? I'd say it's a combination of things. Number one, it's a pandemic-related recession. What the government has to do is try to pick up the slack for what becomes a lessening of, of consumer demand. So you don't spin yourself into from a recession to a depression. This is sound economic policy. So that what you want to do in periods of recession, some of which, again, it's pandemic in origin. So I'm, I'm, you don't blame Trump for that. That's smart policy. That's smart fiscal policy to try to make up that slack when the economy takes a severe dip. But what you can blame Trump and the Republicans for is saying, you know what, we don't care about deficits. So that what we're going to do is we're also going to give an enormous tax cut that's going to, by and large, benefit the wealthy far more than it's going to benefit anyone else. Because guess what? That's the other piece of the deficit-slash-debt equation. So you have money that the government should. You could have long discussions, and there should be long debates about what the government should spend its money on. You shouldn't do what Republicans do and say, well, okay, but tax increases are off the table. Well, why? Why is that? Because I said so is the only answer they have, because I said so. And it's not the first time this has happened. Back in 2001, you know, Bush gave a, a trillion-dollar tax cut to the rich because we ran for the first time in, in a long time a, a surplus. He said, well, let's give all that back. We haven't run a surplus since then because we had another recession. 
Well, we, we went through this before, I guess, in, in 2011. We, under Obama, we faced this, uh, this hanging out near the precipice, and it caused, I guess, no end of problems for the U.S. and, and world economy. Yeah, well, here's the problem. We went into extraordinary measures again during that period, and then the Obama administration and Republicans went into a negotiation to try to deal with how we're going to make sure we don't actually default. And part of the problem was that the negotiations themselves became a subject of so much uncertainty in terms of how they were going to be resolved with competing reports of, well, this is going to happen and that's going to happen, that it, the result actually was extraordinary disruption to the financial markets. The stock market took a dip, took it six months to recover. Global markets became completely disrupted, and it was a mess. So that the, the lesson that Obama learned from the 2011 negotiations was, you know what, we're not going to negotiate over the debt limit, because when it came around again in 2013, and Republicans said, we're going to increase the debt limit ceiling, but only if you do stuff to the Affordable Care Act that makes it less effective. And, and Obama just t essentially told them to go pound salt, because the lesson that they learned from 2011 was, we're not going to negotiate this. And lo and behold, guess what? Some spending issues were resolved, but essentially everything kind of moved along. Even this time around, Mitch McConnell is saying publicly, the United States can't default on its debt. It never has and it never will. Well, Mitch McConnell's in the Senate, but are those five Republicans we're talking about that need to step up to save the economy, these, I think, are, are Republican House members, yes? Yes, that's the, and that's the problem. You know, McConnell is essentially trying to convey a message to, to the Republicans, to, to somebody, uh, who might be listening in the House and in the Republican Party saying, look, don't let this nonsense happen. His position is, you know, there'll probably be some negotiation and then we'll know where we stand. The problem is, in the House, how do you negotiate with a hostage taker who refuses to tell you what his or her demands are? And that's where we are right now with the far right wing Republicans that control Kevin McCarthy and ultimately held the speakership hostage until they got enough assurances from him to essentially put him in an extraordinarily compromised position as the Speaker of the House. Well, the picture that accompanies your, your Common Dreams article shows uh, uh, four Republicans who are... They bear a remarkable resemblance in the photo to a meme that was going around of howler monkeys. Because <laughs> they 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 look like they're howling at the moon. All In this case, they're, they're shouting out against President Biden during his State of the Union speech. And... I guess I just want to ask you uh, to speculate here, from a political standpoint, if these Republicans let things go to hell and we have all kinds of economic chaos, that would be very good for them in the 2024 election. Right. And that's the fundamental problem. I don't know if you saw it. I'm, I'm, I'm sure many of your listeners saw it of Marjorie Taylor Greene, who looked like Tanya Harding in a fur coat. You know, she was doing everything except, you know, wielding the, the skates, screaming. You, you talked about, you know, the meme of howler monkeys. Well, she was your lead howler, very unabashed. And when you couple that with pictures of sort of the arm in arm that you see with McCarthy and Marjorie Taylor Greene, it makes you realize that there is a faction. And unfortunately, it's the tyranny of the minority controlling the majority at this moment anyway. Uh, in the House that I believe is just prepared to say, yeah, the heck with it. Let's just let's let's try some chaos for a while. And what you have to hope that there are enough sane Republicans who are willing to essentially be a counterweight to the fringe group that held McCarthy's speakership hostage. We'll see.
I read this morning there was a group that uh, that has begun to form like that. I've forgotten what they call themselves. There was they listed 80 members of the House. The representative from Nebraska is one of the, I think, spokespersons for it. He said, if that small group can, can wield their muscle, then we must have some muscle, too, because there are even more of us. And the question is, what would they do with it? The, the chief howlers that were during, that were vocalizing during Biden's speech, certainly appear to be the Trump faction. Oh yes, that's in the House. It may be unfair to accuse Trump of, of you know, leading the to charge on on this uh, heckling that went on, but that's I don't think that's a stretch. Yeah, and I don't think he minded it. I, I read that he did complain, for example, about uh, Mitt Romney and and others who were applauding at all the wrong moments and they shouldn't have been applauding. I mean, I just can't imagine what it must be like to be around him, just stewing and stewing and throwing vitriol out. And there's somebody, clearly, who you would say, what would he prefer, an orderly continuation of the decline in inflation and treacherous potential recession, but seemingly okay so far recovery? Or would he rather see it all just burn down? I don't have any doubts about where he comes out on that one. He was prepared to practically, I think, to see the entire country burn down on January 6th. Well, I don't think we need a crystal ball necessarily to forecast what's likely to happen, but I think it's it's fair to say that we cannot anticipate five Republicans coming forward to save the economy. Right. And that sort of leads to the next question, which is sort of the, well, then what? Because remember, they haven't, they haven't told you what they want. Um, they, they, a lot of them have had, a different, have, had, have had different ideas from time to time, some in the Senate, some in the House. Let's cut this, let's cut that. And Marjorie Taylor Greene, boy, the thing that had her really amped up was when President Biden made the completely truthful statement that the leader of the Republican Senate campaign had actually proposed sunsetting, which is to say ending Social Security, all, along with all federal legislation, uh, every five years. And she screamed out, liar. Nope. Nope. And, you know, the next day, Biden showed up with the receipts. He he put brochures on the chairs of his audience in Wisconsin, which were the Senator Rick Scott brochures that had that language in it. And we know there are others that have done the same thing, you know, have had the same views. You know, the Republicans have been out to get Social Security and by, I mean, do bad things to it for literally decades. Well, Marjorie does have her eye on being the next Sarah Palin. So uh, I hope that she does attract Enough attention from Donald J. Trump that he does say, I think I'm going to go with her as my Veep. I think that would help rational people. Maybe. I think it would be time to pull out of the shelves and dust off the old, you know, heartbeat away from the presidency commercials that used to run when people were worried about Dan Quayle. Dan Quayle looks looks like a godsend, you know, in today's Republican Party. Uh, yes. Yes, he does. Right? I mean, Pence was asking Quayle for advice when it came to January 6th, and, and Quayle was giving him sound advice like, no, no, Mike, you can't do that. <laughs> right, right. The scariest part of all that is that Pence thought he needed to ask somebody. Yeah. Hey, wait, what's my job again? Oh, yeah, yeah, wait a minute. What's my job again? Everybody is telling him, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, except for the handful of crazies that are surrounding Trump, I think several of whom are, are absolutely going to be indicted criminally, people like Eastman and, and his ilk. And yet, you know, Pence says, Gee, oh, boy, he's got this. Conscious pilot like moment, you know, what am I going to do? Wringing his hands, I don't know, oh, what am I going to do? Meanwhile, Trump is saying, how about, how about we hang Pence? Yeah, well, before we close today, I just want to mention one more time that Merrick Garland uh, just doesn't seem to have that fire built under him that some of us would hope for. Well, Jack Smith seems to. I think he's got things moving at a pretty, pretty good pace over there. I don't have any inside information at all, all right. about it. All right. 
I'm glad to hear that. Well, if you look at the subpoenas that are now flying out, it was no easy thing to subpoena the former vice president of the United States, which is what he has now done. And the reports I saw said that he had not sought Garland's approval before doing it. Good. Smith is off and running to the races, and I think stuff's going to happen in the Georgia state criminal investigation. You're right. It would be nicer if things happened sooner rather than later. But I think Jack Smith is painfully aware of the Justice Department guidance with respect to as you approach elections. And and I think he's in a bind in terms of having to make sure that he's got everything he needs to do it. I'm still hopefully optimistic there. I'm glad he didn't ask Merrick for permission because it's easier to get forgiveness than permission sometimes. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That is true. Well, Stephen Harper, it's always a pleasure. Looks as though you're probably going to have to do that timeline, I think, of of the the ramp up to the crash of the economy, unfortunately. Default. (laughs) But we look forward to your next communique and, and hope to speak to you soon about what's going on. Great. Thanks, Doug. Always a pleasure. All righty. And when you know it, we no sooner say goodbye to our good friend Stephen Harper when I stumble on a piece here that I could have and should have asked him about, but I will in the future. The article I'm referring to is an article that appeared in the New York Times. In what's described as a blockbuster report, the Times paints a devastating picture of the investigation of special counsel John Durham, who then Attorney General William Barr tasked in 2018 with pursuing the baseless conspiracy theory that that the FBI and Robert Mueller probe into then-President Donald Trump's ties to Russia was the result of a deep state conspiracy cooked up by the Hillary Clinton campaign. Pushed relentlessly by Barr to prove Trump was wronged, Durham spent more than three years on an investigation that yielded just two flimsy prosecutions that took only hours to reject. Durham's witch hunt was so egregiously unprofessional that his top aide and several other prosecutors quit in protest. Jonathan Chait, writing in New York Magazine, said the Times report makes it clear that Barr was the driving force behind an abusive, partisan, and unhinged investigation, noting the whole point of appointing a special counsel is to wall off a politically sensitive investigation. But Durham and Barr met regularly for drinks and dinner, and Durham adopted Barr's Fox News brain beliefs that Trump had been the victim of a conspiracy. To do this, both men ignored a mountain of evidence assembled by Mueller that Trump eagerly welcomed Russia's 2016 election interference. Noted MSNBC.com, so much for Bill Barr's campaign to rehabilitate his image. After he quit during Trump's final days, Barr wanted to be seen not as a pitiful lackey of a failed former president, but as a man with some semblance of integrity. But now it's undeniable that Barr turned his Department of Justice into an extension of Donald Trump's political operation, and he'll be remembered as a political hack. Steve Benson summarized it by saying, The evidence is crystal clear. The Russia scandal was real, and the Durham investigation was a fiasco. Anyway, to that I say hear, hear, although I have good friends who still keep trying to tell me that this whole Russiagate thing is just something that they cooked up. And these friends, in some instances, are not mega folks. Go figure. Anyway, speaking of legal matters, we, 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 we spoke a few weeks ago on this program about the stunning possibility that artificial intelligence is set to tell a defendant what to say during a court case and that the company behind this AI program, Do Not Pay, is offering $1 million to anyone with an upcoming case at the U.S. Supreme Court if they'll do the same thing. By the way, the new buzzword among venture capitalists in Silicon Valley is generative AI. 
That's become a shorthand for the use of computers to create text, images, sounds, and other media in response to short prompts. And it has taken over the conversation about transformative technologies. I'm just waiting for the day when this transformative technology meets up with the legal structure around the corporation. I think it is at that point that we'll see an actual alien invasion to to fight human beings for control of the Earth. But lest I digress, let's return to um, to Earth here and talk about the use of chat box in the law. Well, it turns out it's already happened down in the South American nation of Colombia. A chat bot was used in a legal ruling. Noted the week. Shocking Colombia's legal establishment, a judge admitted last week to consulting the AI app ChatGPT in deciding a case. In his ruling that an insurance company must cover the medical expenses and transport costs of an autistic child whose family could not afford treatment, Judge Juan Manuel Padilla included transcripts of his conversation with ChatGPT. The chatbot, which scours the internet for relevant information, said insurance must pay. Critics were appalled, noting that chatbots can sometimes give false information. I don't know why that would be a problem. Chatbot GPT itself, when it was asked by The Guardian if it should participate in legal rulings, demurred, saying, judges should not use chat GPT when ruling on legal cases. Keep in mind, this is the bot itself answering the question. It added, it is not a substitute for the knowledge, expertise, and judgment of a human judge. To which I can't resist adding, well, some human judges. I can't resist it at this point inserting the old legal joke, which I've heard lawyers tell, of what do you say to the person that finishes last in his law school class? The answer being, good morning, judge. And there's this by Alyssa Miolin from the Bay Area News Group. ChatGPT, an artificial intelligence tool that can write essays, poems, and emails on any subject with the crack of a cursor, sent shockwaves throughout the education world when it was introduced late last year. Now its creators have built a new program that can help catch students who use the AI bot to cheat. Yes, the creators have built this program. But instead of quelling teachers' fears, the new detection tool has become somewhat of a letdown within the technology and education worlds. Created by San Francisco-based company OpenAI, the platform identifies AI-written text accurately about a quarter of the time and gives false positive results for nearly one in 10 submissions. Some experts worry that the company's detection program could lead to wrongly accusing students of plagiarism. I'm a lot more concerned about the students correctly accused of plagiarism. After the chatbot's release late last year, school districts across the country reacted with alarm. With the ability to churn out content in seconds, ChatGPT was seen by many as the ultimate cheat code for students, and some believed it was the nail in the coffin for original writing. Students began turning in AI-written assignments, companies began integrating ChatGPT into their copywriting protocols, and within weeks, its use was banned in schools across New York City, Los Angeles, and Seattle. Meanwhile, some of the world's largest tech companies are scrambling to catch up. Last week, Microsoft revealed it was integrating ChatGPT's technology into its Bing search engine. Google followed with its own version called BARD. The article quotes Jake Carr, described as an English teacher in Chico, as saying earlier this month, it's going to change everything. And speaking of the interface between tech and the law, 
Greg Noon writing in Tech Monitor said, we're only a little over a month into 2023, but it appears to be shaping up to be the year of the AI lawsuit. As their reach grows, AI-generative platforms are facing a growing number of copyright infringement lawsuits, primarily based on the argument that these models are spitting out little more than cheap reformulations of existing copyrighted work. Take, for example, the three artists who recently filed a civil lawsuit in San Francisco and London against AI image creators Midjourney and Stability AI. At the heart of their case is the argument that these firms infringed the copyright of the artists by using their images without permission, and that inclusion of these images in the training data makes the outputs effectively derivative content. The artists will likely have an uphill battle here in the U.S., where a broad fair use doctrine permits the use of copyrighted materials for the purposes of free expression or for a transformative purpose. But arguing fair use in the UK and Europe is probably going to be more difficult. And in November, a computer programmer named Matthew Butterick sued OpenAI and the Microsoft-owned programming tools company GitHub over a GitHub feature called Copilot that generates computer code. The lawsuit highlights how AI is scrambling the ideas of ownership, copyright, and authenticity online. Copilot, Butterick claims, is essentially plagiarizing the work of human software developers. A GitHub executive counters that human programmers have always examined other people's code to inform their own work. GitHub says that what AI is doing is no different. Well, I guess we're all going to see how that pans out. All right, the minute I've got left, I can talk either about Pegasus or Steve Wozniak. Let me try to do both. Pegasus is that program about which books and documentaries are being put together that we should all know more about. I'll just quote the authors of Pegasus, the story of the world's most dangerous spyware, as saying, quote, regular civilians being targeted with military-grade surveillance weapons against their will, against their knowledge, and with no recourse is a dystopian future we are really careening towards. And if we don't understand this threat, is a dystopian future we really are careening toward if we don't understand this threat and move to stop it. More on that in the future. In the meantime, Steve Wozniak calls Elon Musk dishonest and says that he and Tesla robbed him and his family. Evidently, Woz bought a Tesla some years back, then spent $50,000 on an upgrade. Musk said it would allow him to drive coast to coast without a driver intervention. And by the end of 2017, noted Steve Wozniak, the car's self-driving abilities are still far from what Musk promised. It makes mistakes all the time, he said. It's a horrible, frightening experience. I have to laugh at the fact that Steve Jobs, Woz's former partner, didn't have the best reputation in the same area. Wozniak had to admit Steve Jobs wasn't so dishonest, but he would say things in ways that he just had a way of grabbing you. To which he added, but it it wasn't really that untruthful. You didn't buy something thinking you were going to get A but didn't get it. Well, Radio Parallax finds it's going to have to side with uh, Steve Wozniak over Elon Musk in the battle of the tech titans. And we're out of time. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Thanks again to Stephen J. Harper for again enlightening us about things we should know more about. I'm Douglas Everett. See you next week. (laughs) 